comes to junior church, and I encourage you as the children make their exit, I encourage you to make your way to Romans chapter 8 in the Bible. We are transitioning, and now we get to begin this marvelous, awesome passage of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. So please turn there as I set up the passage. We're walking our way through Romans, and I'll put it in context here in just a moment uh, as well. Romans is right after Acts in your New Testament. And we are about halfway through the book of Romans. And Paul's been talking about salvation and how we're saved and all that stuff. And now he's transitioning to talk all about the Holy Spirit. I read this a few weeks ago. I think it's an appropriate introduction here. One of the more humorous quirks of scientific history is a debate over who should get the credit for discovering oxygen. Joseph Priestley was an English scientist and clergyman, and Priestley is often given the honor because he was the first to publish his findings, doing so in 1774. In 1774, he published his findings about oxygen. Priestley originally called the gas deflogisticated air. Deflogisticated air. However, in 1772, two years prior to Priestley, in 1772, uh, Priestley, before Priestley's find, a Swedish chemist named Carl Scheele, Carl Scheele independently discovered the gas that is crucial to human existence. Strangely enough, the term oxygen didn't actually come into use until 1775, when yet another chemist, a Frenchman named Antoine, Antoine, Lavoisier, 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 just go with that, discovered and he named the gas we breathe. Lavoisier was also the first to recognize oxygen as one of the natural elements. Well, I am for sure grateful that these three scientists figured out oxygen because I have no idea how they breathed before oxygen was named. How did they ever exist before that? Regardless of who gets the credit, it's odd to think of a human being discovering oxygen, right? I mean, how do you discover oxygen? What did we breathe before the important discovery? Does a fish discover water? The truth is that oxygen literally surrounds us every day. And even if we choose to call it deflogisticated air, we can't live without it, can we? We can't live without oxygen. Many of us have tried, right? When I was a kid, we used to have contests in the pool to see who could hold their breath the longest. I remember an old episode of the Andy Griffith Show, maybe you've heard of it, where Opie is talking to one of his friends, and his friend is able to tell his dad how it is, and his friend doesn't get disciplined at home, and his friend challenges Opie, you can, you can, you can get your dad to do what you want, and so Andy Griffith is going back and forth with Opie, and Opie's arguing with his father, and then Opie begins to hold his breath, and Andy says, what are you doing, Opie? He says, holding my breath. Because the thought is, if he holds his breath long enough, his dad will get worried and give his, his dad what he, what he wants. So his dad just says, okay, you enjoy that. A moment later, he gives up on that, right? We need oxygen. We also need the Holy Spirit. Friends in Christ, the same is true of the Holy Spirit. As Christians, we have new life. We have life in the Holy Spirit, and that is our focus today. My theme and application today is that we are not under condemnation. 
If we are in Christ Jesus, we are not under condemnation. But we, we must set our minds on the things of the Holy Spirit. We are not under condemnation if we are in Christ. And we must set our minds on the things of the Holy Spirit. We must walk with the Holy Spirit. We're going to walk through Romans 8, 1 through 11. And I, and I want to read an excerpt from the New American Commentary to set up this passage. Let me read this paragraph. Romans 8, the intro from the New American Commentary reads this. With chapter 8 of Romans, we arrive at what may be called the inspirational highlight of the book of Romans. I like that. Here the apostle is swept along in a wave of spiritual exaltation that begins with God's provision of the Spirit for victory over the old nature. Breaks through the sufferings that mark our present existence and crests with the doxology of praise to the unfathomable love of God revealed in Christ Jesus. Nowhere in the annals of sacred literature do we find anything to match the power and beauty of this remarkable pie of praise. Although the pinnacle of this exalted prose awaits our arrival at verses 28 through 39. The earlier sections provide the setting against which the culminating truce will break forth with an even greater brilliance. We are not dealing here with mere theology. As Paul wrote his pen, gave evidence that he was caught up in an experience of profound worship and spiritual adoration. As Paul writes Romans, he's caught up in profound worship and spiritual adoration right here in Romans chapter 8. So let's look at this. We're going to go verse by verse and walk through the first 11 verses. And we're going to spend like the next five weeks on Romans chapter 8. It's so marvelous and awesome to deal with Romans chapter 8. So first we see the believer's relationship to the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember the context. Remember chapter 7. In chapter 7, Paul wrote about how we cannot keep the law. In Romans chapter 7, verse 6, Paul wrote about how the law exposes our sin. The law exposes our sin. In, in, in um, chapter 7, Paul wrote about how there is a war between the two natures. There is a war between the flesh and the spirit in our life. I mean the case that I believe Paul, in Romans chapter 7, is writing about either his life before he became a Christian, or he's just writing about a Jewish unbeliever. And the point is that we cannot keep the law on our own. We need to be redeemed. We need to be restored. We need to be regenerated. We need the Holy Spirit in our life. We need to commit our life to Christ. The, the, the law will not make us righteous. We need help. And now this verse, Romans 8, 1, says there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The verdict is delivered. And we are not condemned. Think about that. If you are in Christ, the verdict is delivered and you are not condemned. It, this verse says it right here. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The condemnation was the past. The trial is over on the sole basis of Christ's righteousness imputed. Then a reversal of the court's verdict is impossible. If you are in Christ, you have Christ's righteousness imputed, given to you. And because of that, 
The verdict cannot be overturned. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That verse alone is powerful. And we have to read that verse in the context of Romans chapter 7, the war between the two natures. Paul says, who will set me free? Who will deliver me? Only Jesus delivers us. And if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. And some of us need to hear that message and be reminded of that message today. The next verse, a few verses build on this idea. Verse 2 gives the contrast between the law of the Spirit and the Old Testament law. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 reads, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. This is why there is no condemnation. Jesus took our condemnation on the cross. Jesus fulfilled the law and fulfilled it perfectly and went to the cross for us. God never intended us to go it on our own. Did not Jesus say, apart from me, you can do nothing? That's John 15, 5. You can read it later. But that's still the truth for us. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Verse 3 builds on the idea. Verses 3 through 4. God did what the law could not do. Look at verses 3 through 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How did God do it? It continues, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, Jesus fully human, and, and uh, in the likeness of sinful flesh uh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in, in, in a fully human body, fully human, fully God. He went to the cross for us. He took the condemnation on the cross in our place. One could restate the logic this way. Christ accomplished for us the condemnation that the law demands, so that He might accomplish in us the sanctification that the law commands. The key phrase for our purpose is the phrase, so that, or in order that. When God put Christ in our condemned place, he did this not only to secure heaven, but to secure holiness. You ever think about that? Because Jesus lived a totally sin-free, righteous life, he could die in our place and be the sin offering in our place. But more than that, he could also give us his righteousness, his holiness, and because he gives us his righteousness, that's, that's, that's making us justified, declared righteous. Because he did that, we can be reconciled to Almighty God. We can have a renewed relationship with Almighty God. We can, without that, we can't even have a relationship with God. Our sins are in the way. But Jesus gives us his holiness, his righteousness. This author continues, more precisely, Jesus did this not only to secure our life in paradise, but also to secure our love for people. The Spirit is mentioned, if you look through the book of Romans, the Spirit is mentioned, the Holy Spirit is mentioned in Romans chapter 1 verse 4, chapter 2 verse 29, chapter 5 verse 5, and chapter 7 verse 6, but it's mentioned 19 times in Romans chapter 8. Do you think the Holy Spirit is important to Romans chapter 8? Do you see why John Piper calls this the most important chapter in the Bible? And we're just beginning to get into this. It's powerful. 
The Holy Spirit frees us from sin and death, verses 2 through 3 shows. And if you chart, if you kind of charted or outlined the rest of Romans chapter 8, that he frees us from sin and death, that's verses 2 through 3. He enables us, the Holy Spirit enables us to fulfill God's law, verse 4. He changes our nature and grants us strength for victory over our our unredeemed flesh, that's verses 5 through 13. Uh, He confirms our adoption as God's children, that's verses 14 through 16. And he guarantees our ultimate glory in in verses 17 through 30. God, through the Holy Spirit, guarantees our ultimate glory, our glorification. If you're in Christ, you'll eventually be glorified when you go to be with Jesus in heaven. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. Let's look at verses 5 through 11. In verses 5 through 8, starting with verses 5 through 8, we see the contrast of those, the contrast of those according to the flesh versus those according to the Spirit. Verse 5 reads, For those who live according to the flesh... Set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. According to the flesh means the fallen, sinful nature. If we are not in Christ, if you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you are living according to the flesh, you are going to set your minds on the things of the flesh. If we do not know Christ, we set our minds on the things of the world. However... If we know Christ, if we live with him, John 15, if we live according to the Spirit, we set our minds on the things of God. Now, that's not to say that there's not a struggle, a day-in, day-out struggle, but hopefully the Holy Spirit is revealing things to us, and we are repenting of them, and we are striving to walk with Jesus. Let me add right here, oftentimes throughout the New Testament... The Apostle Paul and the others describe the Christian life as a walk, not a run. Some of us may be happy about that, right? It's a walk. Sometimes walking is struggling, but, sometimes, but most of the time walking is natural. We're to walk after Jesus. Walk with the Holy Spirit within us as regenerated believers in Christ Jesus, persevering in the faith, striving for the faith, reaching forward towards the goal of the high calling in Christ Jesus. Verse 6 continues the contrast. Verse 6 says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind of the Spirit is life and peace. You ever think about that? If you set your mind according to the flesh, it is death. We cannot fulfill the law. We cannot do what God wants us to do. Not in the way of the flesh. Not in the sinful way. But if we set our minds on the things of the Spirit, which we can only do through the Holy Spirit within us, is life and peace. We are to set our minds on the things of the Holy Spirit. Uh, This is partnering with the Holy Spirit to let the Spirit work within us. I, I would encourage you to read Philippians 2, 12 through 13 later. In Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. God is working in you. Let it work out of you. We receive life and peace by being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. This means peace with God, reconciliation with God. But but how is the mindset on the flesh death? Verses 7 through 8 answers this. In verses 7 through 8, it shows that the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. The mindset on the flesh does not submit to God's law and cannot. If your mind is set on the flesh, you will not submit to God's law and you cannot submit to God's law. Let's read verses 7 through 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, 
Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's right there in Romans 8. It's the word of God. It's not from me. If you don't like it, take it up with the messenger. Take it up with God. If our mind is set on the flesh, if we are not in Christ, we cannot please God. We need to walk with the Holy Spirit. We need to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We need Jesus. We need in Christ alone, as we just sang about. This is because the mindset in the flesh is focusing on the fallen, depraved things. One, one could go further that we have eternal death without being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You hear that? We have eternal death without being renewed, regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Don't we see this all around? The world is continually showing its fallenness. The world is continually showing its depravity. And we are continually seeing that we need help from an outside source. We need divine intervention. We need help that only God can give. And we see it certainly even within the Christian church. We strive, we struggle, and we must turn to God, and we must turn to God's word, and we must not compromise the word of God. And to do, the only way you can do that is by walking by the Holy Spirit within us. Notice when in the flesh we cannot please God, we must be born again. We must be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Verses 9 through 11 are all about how the Spirit dwells in us. Let's read verses 9 through 11. This is where it gets to be the real crux. This is really powerful. Uh, look, look at verses 9 through 11. You, however, notice the direction, the pointiness. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Pause. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, you are not in the flesh. We, if we know Christ, we're not in the flesh. We are in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is within us, regenerating us. Anyone, I'm continuing here, anyone who does not, this is still verses 9 through 11, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Christ. But if Christ, notice that, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. That's powerful. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He's crediting the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, who resurrected Jesus from the dead. He's in us. And he will also give life to us. Notice the pointiness, as I already pointed out. You, however, are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit. That is if the Spirit of God dwells in you. This means that if we are saved, if you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. This is a really neat passage. If anybody asks you, where does the Bible say we have the Holy Spirit if we, if we know Christ? Right here. It, it, it could not get more direct. Right here. If you're saved, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is within you. If you're saved, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit has baptized, immersed you. If you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you do not belong to him. Very pointed, very clear. Notice how the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ are used interchangeably. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. Verse 11 is powerful. Again, if, this is assuming you are saved, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. How? Through the Spirit who dwells in you. 
We needed outside help. We needed divine intervention. God met our need. Even before you knew you had a need, God met that need. Even before you were born 2,000 years ago, God met that need through Jesus' death on the cross. It's all about Jesus meeting our needs. It's all about Jesus regenerating us. We can't do it on our own. You've probably heard it before. Religion is about how, um, religion is about how we earn our way to heaven. How we do things to earn our way to heaven. Christianity is about how Jesus did it for us. We can't earn our way to heaven. The Holy Spirit who raised Jesus is in you. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. The Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead and he will also raise us. Who raised Jesus from the dead? Right here is the Holy Spirit. But if you read through the New Testament, all three parts of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, are all credited with the resurrection. It's a triunity of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Let's make some applications. Be encouraged that we do not live under condemnation. Why are we condemning ourselves all the time? If we repent of our sins, if we know Christ, it's only the devil who's trying to accuse us. We have no condemnation if we know Christ. Be encouraged that Jesus did what we could not do on our own. That's verses 2 through 3. God stepped in by sending Jesus. We must give thanks to the Lord and worship the Lord and serve the Lord for his awesome free gift. Do we think about that? Do we give thanks to the Lord for his awesome free gift of salvation? Do we worship? When we sing these worship songs, when we sing in Christ alone, and we sing about God taking our sins away, and we sing, you know, these other, these other great worship songs, do we worship the Lord for the great salvation? It seems like the devil always makes us focus on the temporal, not the eternal. This is awesome. We are saved. No matter what we face in this life, we have eternal life with God in heaven. We also have a fuller life, complete life, abundant life through Jesus and uh, living within us. We must set our minds on the things of the Spirit. I would encourage you to read Galatians 5, 20, 22 through 23 about that. We must understand that when our mind is set on the Spirit, we have real life. We have abundant life. We have eternal life. We have peace. That is peace with God. Philippians 4, 7. God gives us peace that passes all understanding. We must understand that the mindset in the flesh, though, is hostile to God. We see things going on in the world around us. We turn on the news. And hopefully, as soon as you turn it on, you think, I don't want to watch this, and turn it off. I forget who I read that said a few years ago that he gets up in the morning and he looks at the newspaper, turns on the news, and he thinks, I need to go pray for, <laughs> I need to go pray for the rapture again. Nothing we're facing now cannot be fixed by a good rapture. We turn the news. We see that the world is fallen. The world is depraved. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God. James 4.4. 4, friendship with the world is enmity with God. We see the Bible tells us what's going on in the world. The Bible gives us that answer. What is wrong with the world? It is fallen. It is depraved. But God sets us free. And maybe we ought to quit focusing on all the wrongness in the world and focus on the rightness of the gospel. That's the ultimate hope for the world. And that's the ultimate hope for us is that we live with Jesus. We live in Christ. We walk with the Holy Spirit within us. We don't panic. 
We must understand the dichotomy between God's ways and the ways of the flesh. We must understand that if we are in Christ, we have the Spirit of God in us. That's verse 9. We must worship God for this awesome truth and walk by the Spirit. Praise God that the Holy Spirit, who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in us. Think about that. The Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. If you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. And he will also resurrect our body. Our bodies are fallen. They get sick. They suffer. Someday God's going to restore all things. Someday there's going to be a resurrection. There's a big, big, big waterfall. You probably never heard of it. Niagara Falls. Some of you have been there. So we've been there multiple times. I've been there once. It's amazing. You're driving up the road, and all of a sudden, there's the waterfall, and there's the traffic. And we went there about four years ago, actually uh, two days before I interviewed here at Bethel. And I don't know if you know, but on March 29, 1848, Niagara Falls completely and mysteriously stopped flowing. The water stopped. The estimated 500,000 gallons of water that customarily rushed over the falls stalled to a trickle. James Francis Macklem, a village justice of the peace in the Niagara area, wrote that he had witnessed the subsistence of the waters and the phenomenon of the Niagara running dry. And he had witnessed that this caused great excitement in the neighborhood at the time. Now, I would think that would cause great excitement. The waterfall stopping, and this is 1848. To some, the mystery of the sudden turning off of the river seemed to be an ominous portent. In nightfall, found most of the churches packed with people, praying or talking in frightened voices about the end of the world. The Niagara Falls have stopped, and the churches are full, and people are praying, and they're talking about what is going on. Fear grew into the proportions of panic. The cause of this unusual event began along the shores of Lake Erie near Buffalo. For several days, the wind had been blowing to the east over Lake Erie, driving much of its ice flow downriver. So the wind is blowing the ice flow downriver. And then the wind suddenly shifted to the west, and the ice flow dammed up the river. And so for almost 30 hours, the waters quit running over Niagara Falls. We have more than an amazing waterfall within our lives. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we become cold towards Christ, and when we do not let the Holy Spirit flow through our lives, it can become disastrous. You know, the Holy Spirit is in you. How do we stay in tune with the Holy Spirit? The first step is make sure we're in the Bible. Don't compromise it. Be in it. Saturate yourself with the Word of God. Ruminate on the Word of God. Meditate on the Word of God. Memorize the Word of God. Study the Word of God. Listen to the Word of God. You know, read it in community. Study it in community. We need, we need time in the Word. We also need time with our church family. God works through the church. We need to pray, preach, and worship, and study, and everything else with the church. Fellowship with the church. And then also, of course, we have the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. I wonder, has your love of Christ grown cold? Has your love of Christ, for Christ iced over and dammed up the Holy Spirit within you? Today in prayer, 
confess any sin to Christ. And remember the love you had for him when you first became a Christian. You ever think about that? Remember the love you had for Jesus when you first became a Christian. Think about that. Remember the love you had for him, for Jesus, maybe at a time of great spiritual growth. Maybe it wasn't when you first became a Christian. Maybe it was some time in your life when you rededicated your life to him, when you were really on fire for him. When you really experienced forgiveness and the awesomeness of forgiveness, remember that. Journal about it. Think about it. And ask the Lord. Confess any sin and ask the Lord for that abundance, that fullness of the Holy Spirit. We all as Christians have the Holy Spirit within us. But sometimes I think we can have just a special feeling, a special feeling of the Holy Spirit. A special fullness of the Holy Spirit within us. We want to pray for that. We need that. Walk with him and do not let your love grow cold. We're going to take communion in a moment. First, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, close this in prayer. And then as, uh, I'm going to invite Nick to get ready. Uh, Steve's going to introduce a song, which we're going to kind of split with communion. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we just ask your blessings and care as we remember the Lord's Supper right now. And Lord God, it's fitting to close this sermon this way, thinking about the, the Holy Spirit's life within us. And as we get ready to go to uh, communion, I pray, Lord God, if there's anything damming up the Holy Spirit within us, I pray for your conviction, your convicting work. Convict each and every one in the pews that we are repenting of any sin prior to taking communion. Not just for communion, though. That's a very, very, very important uh, memorial meal that you instituted but for our life in you. And Lord God, if there's anyone here listening or, or uh, watching, I just realized I'm off camera now. I pray, Lord God, if there's anyone here who does not know you, may today be the day to confess they're a sinner in need of a Savior, to believe in you as the one and only Savior, to trust in you and commit to you. Help us walking in a relationship with you, staying in tune with the Holy Spirit. Oh, Lord God, encourage us with how awesome that is that you truly do dwell within us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.